Good evening, and welcome to RUF. As David said, my name is Derek, or as he prayed, maybe both. Anyway, my name is Derek, campus pastor for RUF, year 10 here. And uh, that means I was here doing this when some of you were like eight years old. And uh, that's cool. If we haven't met, love to catch up or meet sometime, grab a cup of coffee, buy you lunch, or vice versa. And uh, whatever the case may be, I'll take it any way we can. Love to hang out, get to know you. And uh, yeah. This semester, we've been studying uh, what has often been called Jesus' Last Lecture. It's a section in the Gospel of John from chapters 13 to 17. And uh, we've called it Jesus' Last Lecture. It's often called the Upper Room Discourse. But the lecture itself has ceased. Jesus actually stops lecturing at the end of verse 16. And for you that love lectures, I'm sorry, it's over. Uh, What happens in chapter 17 is Jesus seamlessly moves to prayer. He sees this naturally moves from talking to his followers, trying to prepare them for his death, for praying, to praying for them, uh, for himself, uh, for the Father himself. And over the next couple weeks, three weeks, we're going to be looking at this prayer in depth. Um, it's called the High Priestly Prayer, if you're reading in your own Bible. I like calling it the Lord's Lord's Prayer. And uh, We're going to listen in over the next three weeks and hear how Jesus prays and what he prays for. And would you believe it, you make the cut. You make the cut of things that Jesus actually prays for in his last night on earth. So I'm just going to be be reading verses 1 to 5. You can feel free to follow along up there. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. All right, let's pray. Uh, Great Father, at the end of the week, we come perhaps worn down, mentally exhausted, maybe uh, stressed, burdened. Uh, Maybe we don't feel any of those things because we are so completely fried, we don't even know how we're doing. Uh, Father, we ask for your help. Help us, Lord. Uh, Teach us things from your law. Lift up our eyes and our hearts that we might understand uh, great things out of this text. That we might see you in your goodness. Be with me in my weakness. I am uh, no less fried than many in this room. So would you please be kind uh, to these people and to me for your glory. They're good. We ask you things in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you're looking for an interesting way to uh, waste time and entertain yourself uh, on that thing called the interwebs, uh, one of the things you can do that I find really quite interesting, slightly morbid, but nonetheless entertaining, is uh, to look up famous last words. Lots of very interesting things said by very interesting people in their very last words. Yes, it's morbid. Some real gems out there. And uh, here's a few. Uh, when Groucho Marx, 20th century comedian actor, was dying, he had one last quip. He said, this is no way to live. And and then he died. He knew what he was doing. Brilliant comedian to the end, yes. 
Uh, Groucho had a brother named Leonard, not well known. He was better known as Chico Marx. And his last words were actually instructions to his wife. This is what he said. Remember, honey, don't forget what I told you. Put in my coffin a deck of cards, a mashy niblick, which is a golf club, and a pretty blonde. Uh, and then he died. <laughs> yes. Interesting, huh? Yeah. Um, you can find a lot more morbid ones, and frankly, a lot of angry ones as well. Uh, Jesus is not yet to the point of his very last words, but he's in his last hours. And uh, some, so these are some of his last words. And in some of these, his last words, he has parting gifts on his mind as well. Things he's asking for for himself and for others. Like Chico. Not the exact same things as Chico Marx, but things for himself and for others that he's asking for in prayer. Uh, unlike Groucho, uh, he sees his impending death on the cross, his very soon to happen death, as the way to live. That's actually what he's going to be talking about in these four or five verses. That this is very much the way to life. Those kind of things are going to jump off the text. But what's sort of surprising in these first five verses is how Jesus prays for himself. He, he asked for prayer for himself a couple times. And he, what he asked for is that he would be glorified. And uh, that's an interesting request. For some of you, you may have trouble uh, squaring what that means. Like, Jesus, always the selfless servant. How could he be asking to be glorified? What does that mean? And uh, I think that's all wrapped up into a bigger question. He's about to die on a cross. How do you even begin to put cross and glory into the same hemisphere? They just don't fit, it seems. Cross is humiliation and loss. What does it have to do with glory, which is greatness? How how do they relate to one another at all? Two centuries after the death of Jesus, as the Apostle Paul is traveling around the world, uh, all over the Middle Eastern world, sharing the message of Jesus, he's able to say with a lot of experience in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Jews, the religious Jews, they want wisdom. They, they, They want power. They want signs. They want to see how God works. And the Greeks, the sophisticated folks, they want wisdom. That's what they want. They want power or they want wisdom. And what we give them is a message that is the cross. Weakness and foolishness. And uh, 2,000 years later, for much of the world, when they think about the cross, naked man, naked Jew on a cross, that's what happens. It looks like weakness and foolishness. You actually expect me to believe that that event over a couple hours was like the crux of human history? So that's one question. How do we put those things together? The weakness, the foolishness, and how that's supposed to be glorious? And then how's it supposed to be good? How's it supposed to be good for us? What's this have to do with us and how's it good for us? And then what we're going to do in these first five verses here is listen in on Jesus' prayer. And what we're really hearing is a conversation between Jesus and the Father where we get what they think about the cross. Not what the world thinks about the cross, but what Jesus himself and the Father think about what's about to happen in the cross. Okay? So, uh, three little simple headings tonight. Jesus' prayer, Jesus' hour, and Jesus' glory. Okay? And I'm just going to start off with the simplest, this is like the simplest point that I've probably 
ever made in RUF in nine or ten years of teaching, and it's that Jesus prayed. And uh, so not a lot of deep interpretation on this one, but you look at it and it's, it should be striking that Jesus prayed. After all, he claims to be the divine son. And if ever anyone had a reason just to like turn inward and begin to pray to themselves, it was Jesus. And, and sometimes, I mean, you may go to some spiritual activities on campus where they will actually ask you to focus on your center. And I don't just mean like tighten your core. No, they, they want you to look within to find the spiritual within you. And if anyone ever had a real reason to do that, it would be the Son of God. And he never, ever, ever does that. Every time he prays, he prays up and out to a father who's outside of him. And he does it here as well. He prays to a real father, a God that's outside of himself. And he addresses him as father. This divine being is his father. And uh, that affects how he prays. He can pray with real words and have a real conversation. So first he prays to a real father and he prays with real words. Jesus being, I, I think it's pretty safe to say this, he's the most spiritual person ever. Can we agree on that? Some of you say, no, I like to debate. You can talk about it later. But, okay, you read through the history, pretty special, loved everyone all the time, did what was just and right, pretty spiritual. You read through this and, uh, you know, there's some big words, but, like, there's no super spiritual language in here. He's having a real conversation with his father, with real words. He's, in other words, prayer for Jesus, and hopefully for us, is not performance art. It's not trying to impress. This is not even public speaking. He's having a real conversation with his father. Because he knows his father, he knows the father's will. And so he's able to talk about what's right in front of him. My hour has come. The cross is about to happen. And what he wants, would you please glorify me that I might glorify you. He makes real requests. All right, let me, let me talk about why I'm talking about this. Why do we pray in RUF? Anyone ever ask that question to yourself? Why do, why do we pray in RUF? And uh, because some of you are thinking like, yeah, because no one really wants to. Or uh, because, because it's really awkward when someone asks me to pray and I don't want to. Um, and uh, <laughs> thankfully we have someone who's not afraid of the awkwardness. Um, and moreover, some of you may even have philosophical questions. You know, if, if this God you believe in knows everything, He's in control, He's sovereign, why even bother to pray? What's the good of it anyway? Well, conversely, if He's not sovereign, why would I bother to pray? Because then He can't do anything. Um, so we can run around in those philosophical circles all day long. Um, Jesus knows everything already that he's about to pray about. Back in chapter 13, all these things he prays about is already on his mind. And he goes and in light of those things he knows, he, he prepares his disciples. He talks about it for four chapters. And at the end of that, the best teacher that ever lived stops and starts praying. In other words, knowledge is not enough. I need to say it over for you academicians in training, you scholars who want nothing more than to get A pluses or to get a job so you can get money. Knowledge is not enough. The best teacher who ever lived came to a point when he was talking to his followers where he decided, nothing more I say will matter. It's just time to pray. And Jesus prays. Some of you may think, whether it's David asking you to pray in public, or you in a small group, or maybe you in your room, some of you may think, I don't know enough, or I'm not spiritual enough to pray. 
It's possible that's actually true. Um, maybe you don't know enough. But I will say this. If you know that God is your Father and that all you're called to do is have a real conversation with Him with real words about what's really going on in your life, you can pray. You can pray. That's all the Father wants. It's for you to know who He is and to have a real conversation with Him with real words. And uh, there are some of us who, who don't pray or don't want to pray, and, and frankly, I think this is all of us, including me, because we're cynical. We just don't know if it matters. Is it really going to change anything? Cynicism shoots right through each one of us. And uh, here, again, is one who knows exactly what's about to happen. He is going to die very shortly. And he prays. If anyone had a reason to be cynical, it might be Jesus, who knows he's going to die. Nails through wrist, through ankle, dead in the grave. He knows it, yet he prays. He prays because he has a loving father who wants to talk to him. And he wants to talk to his father. And it matters. So now let's consider uh, what he prays about, okay? And uh, we'll just start off by this first verse. Just consider this the heading for the whole night. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Okay, how do we put those things together again? The hour and the glory. The hour means the, the crucifixion, the death, the gore, the humiliation, and then glory. What do these things have to do with one another? We'll take one each in our own turn. Let's talk about the hour. This phrase, the hour, has been appearing in John over and over. It first appears all the way back in chapter 2. Far, far away from a cross on a hill, surrounded by Romans who are ready to break his legs if he doesn't die fast enough. Jesus, three years earlier, is at a wedding. And his mom comes up and says, hey, um, they ran out of wine. And Jesus basically says, woman, what's this got to do with me? And, uh, and he, his reply is, my hour has not yet come. It's the first time we hear that word on his lip. But he's basically saying, it's not time for the world to know who I really am. It's not time for the full exposure of who I really am. Later in chapter 2, to those who are questioning his authority, at this point he's moved to the temple. He's began to challenge the authorities. He's teaching the truth, the gospel, the good news. And those who challenge his authority, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He was saying this about the temple of his body. Somehow early on, as far as as early as chapter 2, Jesus knows that there's a time to come where he will die and there will be a rising or resurrection on the other side. And all throughout John, there's this almost like a ticking clock uh, of his mission. In chapter 12, to his disciples, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Man, you know, this is a couple chapters ago, and Jesus at this point knows a couple things about the hour, and that means we do too. What can we say about this hour that Jesus keeps talking about? It involves his suffering and death on a cross. He seems to already know that. Somehow it involves his glory as well. Uh, he is troubled about this, and yet it's purposed. It's part of the plan. 
So he knows this is coming, and he says in chapter 1 as he prays that the hour has now come. When we have this, the, these phrases, hour, which entails his death on a cross, and glorify my name in the same verse, we're dealing here with, frankly, nothing less than paradox. I mean, how, how is this possible to put in stark humiliation? Cicero, well-known uh, orator in the first century, said that the cross was so utterly humiliating and despicable that a free citizen should not even, not, 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 not witness it, shouldn't even think about it. You shouldn't even think about it. That's how grotesque and humiliating it was. It's just inconceivable that there could be anything to do with goodness or glory tied up in the cross. And yet that's the paradox. And, and frankly, there's paradox running all through these couple of verses. Check this one out. Verse 2. Jesus, talking to the Father, says, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given Him authority over all flesh. Okay. If I get this, follow me. What Jesus is saying is, the one who's been given authority over all humanity, that's what he's saying, I've been given authority over all flesh. The one who's been given authority over all flesh will be put to death under the authority of that flesh. That the world and those in charge, the rulers of the Jews and the rulers of the Romans, will decide by their authority to put the ultimate authority to death. You don't consider that paradoxical? Man, some of you look completely bored. The world's greatest authority put to death by authorities. That's paradox. It's crazy. How about this one? Keep going. Um, Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all those whom you've given him. The picture here is this. That Jesus is the eternal one who gives eternal life to those who are dead by giving his eternal life. Hang with me. I know it's late. I know you're fried. You can do it. Uh, Jesus has been sent as the eternal Son who has eternal life. And He's called to bring those who are spiritually dead into eternal life. How? By giving His eternal life for them. By dying for them. The eternal one dies so the dead can live. The cross seems like a failure, but it's actually an accomplishment. That's verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me. And Jesus here is speaking of two kinds of work he's done. The work of the mission, where he's told people about God, he's glorified God by showing people what he's like, by also keeping the law and being righteous. But the accomplishment also includes what Jesus does on the cross. Merely going through with it to the very, very bloody end is an accomplishment. Because he didn't have to. He didn't have to. No one made him. He didn't deserve it. He had the authority to walk away. He knew it was coming. He could have ran away. He chose to do it. He chose to do it. And there was an accomplishment. So the picture here then, as of a righteous one, the perfect son, Dying for the ungodly. And that's not as clear in this text, but that's sort of what's going on behind it. That Jesus, on this weekend, in that hour, on the cross, is taking the place of those who deserve it. And he doesn't. And here, because, because it's the holiday season, and by that I mean Reformation Day, um, 
Actually, we don't usually make that big a deal about Reformation Day. If you're like, what is all this for the Reformation Day? Hey, it happens once every 500 years. So, that's it. Um, so, uh, anyway, this quote from Martin Luther. Speaking about Jesus being the substitute on the cross. Now, when Jesus was on the cross, in the place of people that deserved it, it was like this. The Father looking at the Son and saying, You, you be Peter the denier. You be Paul the persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor. You be David the adulterer. You be Adam that sinner that ate the apple in paradise. You be that thief which hanged on the cross. In brief, you be the person which has committed the sins of all men. See therefore that you pay and satisfy for them. Now here comes the law and it says, I find him to be a sinner. Let him die on the cross. Luther is saying that's what happens on the cross. That Jesus takes the place of those who deserve it. And he doesn't deserve it. That the eternal one, the righteous one, dies for the ungodly, spiritually dead ones. Now here's the last paradox. Obviously you're not nearly as geeked out about this as I am. That's too bad. Uh, Jesus speaks of this as an hour. It's actually a weekend. It entails his humiliation, his betrayal, his suffering, his death, his burial, lying in a tomb for a while, and then eventually his resurrection. It happens in the weekend. So, you know, an hour seems like a weekend, especially when you're eternal. Um, or weekend seems like an hour. Um, the paradox is this. This hour is God's eternal plan of redemption. You, you look at the language Jesus is using here, and you, and you get this language of, since you've given Him authority to give eternal life to all you've given Him, and you go all the way back throughout the book and see how Jesus speaks of the hour, and you realize that this is God's plan. And He accomplishes it. This is a plan that the Father and the Son had together, and Jesus accomplishes an eternal plan to save God's people on this weekend. This is how the Father and Son determined together to get their loved ones back. This is how far and how, how deep and how painful they're willing to go in order to bring back the ones they love. And this is why Jesus prays the way he does. Because the whole plan climaxes on this weekend. If Jesus is right, he's telling the truth. Nothing less than the salvation of all God's people depends on Jesus going through with this to the very end. That's pretty important. That's why he's asking for it. Grant me the strength. Glorify me. Grant me the strength to carry through with this to the very bloody end. So if it's true... Jesus is faithful to the end. That means the cross, what Jesus does there, which seems to all the world like weakness, loss, foolishness, is actually glory. It's glory. It's how God reaches down and changes the fortunes of mankind and brings them back to himself. So let's talk about glory for a few minutes and then we're done. Glory is all over this text. The, the words there are a lot. And uh, I could talk about it in a couple different ways. I'm just going to talk about three different ways. First, Jesus only has one request in these five verses, and he asks for it twice. Glorify me. Glorify me. Which, again, is a little out of the ordinary for this selfless serving one. Only a couple chapters later, earlier, he was on his knees washing the feet of people. The ultimate servant. And here he's saying, glorify me. 
But what he's asking here in verse 1 is for the strength and courage to follow through with his eternal plan to the very end because when he does, it will glorify the Father. It will be made clear to a watching world what kind of God is in heaven. It's one who is willing to give his son and a son who is loving enough to give himself in order to save those who, frankly, betrayed God and would much rather serve themselves than love Him. This brings glory back to the Father because Jesus is obedient to the end and because in the cross we see God's faithfulness and His love like nowhere else. One scholar put it this way, when you look at the cross and what Jesus does there, what do you see? You see God's awesome faithfulness. Nothing, not even the instinct to spare His own Son will turn Him back from keeping His word. See, he made, a, he made a promise all the way back at the very beginning of the Bible when man went far away and said, we want nothing to do with you, that He would bring them back. He would bring us back. And, and to be faithful to His word, out of love for His people, Father and Son entered into this agreement that they would do whatever necessary to bring them back, and it meant the death of His own Son. And we see held up in the cross the love of the Father and the love of the Son. They're willing to do this to bring us back. So that's one way in which we see the Father's glory. We also see Jesus moving from glory to glory. Verse 5, slightly different request, very interesting. Now glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before. I told you there's lots of glories here. Uh, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. And what Jesus is saying here is really important. He's saying... For those of you that haven't been tracking really clearly, I, the pre-existing son who was, you know, this is John from the very beginning of chapter 1, Jesus was the Word with God. I've been with you forever, Father. And in order to redeem mankind, I took flesh and came down. I took flesh and came down to this world as the eternal authority, and I've come all the way down, and in fact they're going to put me to death. But when I come through the other side, would you bring me all the way back to you? Would you bring me all the way back into your presence, into the glory that I always had with you before we undertook this plan to save you? I want nothing more, Father, than when I'm done saving these people, than to be back with you in the glory that I had before. The Son wants to be back with the Father. He wants, he wants to enjoy the glory that he had previously. It's, you know, it's, it's probably much easier being the uh, son in heaven with glory than the, the son on earth, ignored and abused and ultimately killed. Uh, so there's that. But he wants to be with his Father in glory. And when Jesus goes back to glory, he takes something with him. It's really interesting. He, he takes a body. You may not be aware of this, but he rises from the dead, resurrected. There's, uh, Christians believe that Jesus has a resurrected body in heaven. That's important because that means you know, there's, like, there's a way for me to get there too. For us. That he intends not just to return to the Father in glory and be done with it, but he intends to bring people along. He intends to bring us to glory. And that's why we have this interesting little verse in verse 3. It, it's sort of strange. It's not a necessarily like a, not a normal prayer. In the middle of it, of this prayer, Jesus says, it almost feels like, like, I don't know, an out-of-place answer to a question that wasn't asked. He, he says in the middle of verse 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you've sent. And Jesus is saying that part of the Father's glory and part of His own glory is having the people that they saved together with them. 
And that when we know Jesus, who was sent, that we might know the Father. When we know Him, we know the Father, and we will be brought into that glory. We can begin to experience that glory now, just a little bit tiny. But in the end, we will experience it with them. Who watched the uh, World Series at the very end last night? One, two, three. You too! Yes, good for you. So you missed it too bad. It was not a great game, necessarily. Um, Except for uh, Ground Chuck, Charlie Morton, former pirate, scrub most of his life. Uh, Has been been great. Pitched a a great game. Anyway, it's also important because the Dodgers, who are evil, lost. uh, (laughs) But you need to know this, okay? So uh, the Houston Astros last night beat the evil Dodgers in uh, Game 7 of the World Series. What's interesting about this is in 2014, a Sports Illustrated writer named Ben Ryder uh, predicted that the Astros would win the 2017 World Series. It was actually such a big, important claim that it made the front, it was like the front page picture of the 2014 Sports Illustrated. It was a fantastic, ridiculous claim because the Astros were in the middle of losing 100 games three years in a row. They were absolutely terrible. But Ben Ryder knew they had a plan. And he trusted that plan. So uh, last night, his plan, their plan, was justified. It became clear. Yeah, they knew what they were doing. As the Astros won Game 7 of the World Series. And uh, after the last out, in the midst of the glory of the celebration, because this is what a kid who plays baseball his whole life dreams about doing, winning the World Series. Uh, In the middle of this glory of victory, one of the Astros' best players, shortstop named Carlos Correa, dropped to a knee and proposed to his girlfriend. Did you watch this? I saw the video. Vicarious enjoyment. Doesn't count. Um, um, He basically said, Daniela Rodriguez, will you make me the happiest man in the world? Will you marry me? Now, it's a great moment of timing. But frankly, I have to ask, like, hey, weren't you already one of the happiest men in the world? Like, you just won the World Series. Like, literally, at midnight last night, you were probably one of the 25 happiest men in the whole world. And the other 24 are all Astros as well. Um, but what he wanted, and why he wanted to do it right then, because he wanted to pull the one he loved into the glory of the victory he was enjoying. He's right. It was the perfect moment. It was the perfect moment, right? He wanted to pull her into the glory of the victory that they were enjoying. Friends, this is what this text is actually telling us. That when Jesus returns to the Father in glory, He's not forgetting you. He he wants you. He did all this for you. There was a plan, and it looked like loss to the whole world, but He had you in mind. He did it off on the cross. He did it for you. He had you in mind. And in glory, He, he wants you. Uh, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. It's hard for us to believe. But to please God. To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God and not merely pitied, but delighted in. As an artist delights in his work or a father and his son that might seem impossible. It might seem like a, a weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly miss. But it is so. Friends, if you've trusted in Jesus, you need to know this about yourself. This is what the Father thinks of you. He deeply loves you. You are pleasing 
to Him, loved by Him, delighted in by Him. He is experiencing, resurrected from the dead, the glory of victory. The cross was a victory. And He wants you with Him to enjoy it now. That doesn't mean He wants you to die. No, He wants you to trust in Him now and begin to experience some of that glory right now. Some of you are thinking, that sounds really good, man, but there's a lot of things I want to enjoy right now instead. Fair enough. A lot of those things, friends, are just shadows of the real glory, of the real victory, of the real love that you really want. Shadows. And Jesus has them with the Father and wants to bring you in. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for these students and their willingness to uh, endure.